Thanks very much. Um, so uh, thanks to Father Philip for the invitation. Uh, so my apologies for, you know, the sort of the health issues at the last minute. But, you know, thanks very much for all the accommodation. And indeed, thanks very much to Sarah. She got her um, hand out to me, you know, in good time. So I had time to reflect on what she was going to say. And I've, you know, jotted down a few notes, a few responses. And so uh, and I thank her for not pulling any punches. You know, I myself am a fighter. So, you know, I like that. I like that attitude and philosophy. So I I will pull my punches, okay, because I'm not the main speaker, but I'll just give a few, you know, sort of responses, a few, you know, sort of dodges and dives just to see where the thomas could go with what um, Sarah was saying. But brilliant paper, Sarah. Thanks very much for the presentation. The first thing that I would like to say is um, I'm wondering... Is suspicion the right approach that we should adopt when relating to a, a philosophical position that's not our own, or maybe is outside a tradition of philosophy that we don't engage in? Now, I'm one who is suspicious of analytic philosophy and the analytic engagement with Thomism, and I've published to that effect in the past. Um, but that suspicion comes from having gone through the entire analytic project or having gone through representatives of the analytic project and come out the other end thinking, well, I, as a Thomist, somebody who thinks that Aquinas was right in certain issues, don't think, I don't think that there can be sort of, you know, dialogue on these certain issues. I think there, there are just some sort of, you know, aspects which, you know, we just, they're, they're in trying, you, you can't get across it. So I think suspicion is right um, when you come out the other end of engaging with a philosophy. I'm not so sure it's the right position to adopt when engaging initially with a philosophy. And, and that's just by way sort of a, of an overview. Um, but with regard to the three skepticisms that uh, Sarah brought up, um, the first one was a suspicion about the foundational tenets of Thomism. Um, now, one of the things that we like to say about Thomas is that he is a systematic thinker. And as a systematic thinker, he is systematic in his distinction of philosophy from theology. Even when he writes as a theologian, for example, in his commentary on the De Trinitate of Boethius, even when he's writing explicitly as a theologian, he makes it clear that philosophy and the formal subject matter of philosophy is distinct from that of theology. And he's one of the first people in the history of philosophy to do that. The subject matter of metaphysics as first philosophy is being qua being or ens commune or however, whatever designation you want to take um, from Aquinas's writings. Uh, whereas the subject matter of theology proper is God, of which Thomas says um, you need some sort of revelation to do theology proper. So the subject matter of uh, metaphysics as first philosophy does not include God and is systematically distinct from theology, whose subject matter does include God as he's revealed himself. Um, so Thomas does carve out an independent philosophical way of thinking, free from considerations within theology. This is why I don't think it's quite accurate to say that every aspect of Aquinas' system involves the existence of God. Certainly those aspects of Aquinas' system that I engage with and publish on his metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of nature, philosophy of mind, logic of demonstration, action theory, even some of his moral philosophy, God doesn't come into it. Um, issues pertaining to essence and existence, matter, form, substance, participation, causality, as, as Sarah rightly pointed out, they don't involve, um, you know, appeals to God uh, and they don't need God. They might end up leading to God, but they don't need God in order for the discussions uh, to go ahead. 
And this kind of brings us to uh, the second point, the mistrust of the methodology. And this is this is the sort of um, idea of Thomists treating Thomas uh, as if he were infallible, as if, as if what he writes is correct just because Thomas wrote it. And, you know, that that's what we do when, when we're Thomists. It's, it's certainly not the attitude that, that I as a Thomist would take, and it's certainly not the attitude that I find when I read other Thomists. It's certainly the attitude of, I think, you know, uh, social media apologists and, and their use of Thomism, but it, 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 it's not the attitude of, um, you know, professional, you know, philosophers, theologians who engage with Thomas. I think the attitude is one that, uh, Sarah, as you pointed out, you, that you find with, say, some Kantians, some followers of Lewis, even Hegelians, other people like that within the analytic tradition. It, it's not a, an infallibilism, you know, when somebody is a Thomist or a Kantian. It's rather that those of us who follow that system, we think that, that this author um, was right about the issues of philosophical importance uh, that we're interested in. So let's say if I'm a, a Thomist metaphysician, as I am, I think it was. I think it's because Thomas was right about generally, you know, every question of importance um, in metaphysics, uh, and those questions of importance in metaphysics that, that I've written and published on, um, I think you know Thomas just got got it right there, and so I seek to uh, defend Thomas uh, on this per particular issue, uh, and you know Thomas can do that uh, with regard to other systematic issues as well, and this I think uh, is precisely because Thomas himself carves out philosophy. Uh, as an uh, as an area of systematic concern, independent from theology, and one which has to be engaged with systematically, or one could say um, analytically, uh, and that 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 raises the question. Sorry, as you pointed out, um, why Aquinas? Why should analytical philosophers be bo bothered with Aquinas and not you know any one of the other guys, such as you know Kant or Hegel or somebody like that? And that's a good question, and you know that that that's one for the Thomists. Uh, to address because it's up to us Thomas to say, well, look, we think that Thomas was right about essence and existence or about causality or, or participation or the mind-world relation or any other number of philosophical topics. That, that's that's what you know we Thomists have to do in trying to convince other philosophers. Well, this is a position worth taking seriously. And uh, as I'm going to argue tomorrow, one, one of the strengths of um, Thomism is that he overcomes certain problems, uh, Thomas overcomes certain problems generated by modern philosophy when a certain um, attitude towards the mind-world relation was adopted. Um, if one doesn't adopt a certain attitude towards the mind-world relation, let's say, or if one is seeking to overcome that uh, sort, sort of, you know, starting point on the mind-world relation that we get, say, in post-Cartesian philosophers, um, Thomism provides a pretty, you know, um, a pretty good, I'm going to argue, uh, position on mind and world, and one that kind of coheres with, with, with what we're getting by certain post-Kantian um, engagements in, in analytical philosophy on mind and world. And then we come to the sort of the, the sort of the last uh, suspicion that Sarah brought up, and this is mistrust of the practitioners of Thomism. And I mean, I, I can see the point here, um, the uh, mistrust of uh, the practitioners. And uh, as Sarah helpfully pointed out, that this goes both ways. And I suppose one of the things I would like to, you know, sort of point out just as a, a methodological point is that the identity of the philosopher or the thinker really ought not to affect the evaluation of the philosophy or the thought Okay, so what the philosopher thinks, okay, that the evaluation of that really not uh, ought not to be affected by the identity of the philosopher. 
And I think, sir, you did grant that, that this was more of a kind of a, a social sort of issue that, you know, whilst we're engaging with the, the objectives, you know, of, of the philosophy of question, sometimes, you know, at the back of our, our mind, we're thinking, you know, well, really, you know, this is sort of setting this individual here, you know, who's in a different life world from me, it, it's sort of setting off alarm bells. But I mean, I think as philosophers, and I think I think if we're trying to be, you know, analytical philosophers in that logic in that logically rigorous way that's being sort of highlighted um, in the two papers, um, we kind of have to set that aside because th those sorts of, you know, sort of maybe feelings of distance from the life world of the other philosopher, um, they're 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 not relevant to the the logical or the conceptual rigor um, that analytical philosophy is after. The uh, various social, political, and religious disagreements um, that, that we can see that can divide people, um, for philosophers, they can be philosophically motivated. Um, so, I mean, having different so social and political views, there can be philosophical motivations for those, genuine philosophical motivations for those. And so the disagreements at base are philosophical disagreements and not just, you know, sort of uh, ones of, you know, a particular worldview or life world. Uh, so the, there are these principal disagreements which philosophers can have on social and political issues. And indeed, Thomists do adopt uh, the positions that they adopt on social political issues on, on the principles of, you know, the Thomistic philosophy that uh, they're willing to defend. Um, so there can be a, a principal disagreement had even over those issues where we see that we're at a distance from one another on kind of, you know, our worldviews. Uh, and given that it's a principal disagreement, it's one which in principle is capable of being overcome through dialogue uh, and discussion. Uh, the last point I want to make then, so I like the way, you know, Sarah characterized uh, analytical philosophy as flexible. But I think, you know, this this can be somewhat genus-based and it's because, um, yes, analytical analytical philosophy is flexible and it's, it has shown itself, at least in the second half of the 20th century um, and in the 21st century, as, you know, embracing all different kinds of philosophical concerns when maybe prior, prior to, say, the work of Quine and the two dogmas of empiricism, there was a very, you know, sort of strict set of concerns it was concerned with. My question then is, what makes it analytic? That's what, that's what I want to know. And this has been my complaint in the past uh, against analytical Thomism, is that it seems to me that there's nothing specifically analytic about analytical philosophy. And what's been, what was mentioned by Mac at the beginning, and then sort of, Sarah, you made the point as well, that there's a certain logical and conceptual rigor to analytical philosophy. And... Well, if that's the case, if it is, if if what's analytic about analytical philosophy is logical and conceptual rigor, or if that's sufficient to include somebody among the ranks of analytical philosophy, I would like to know the difference then between a philosopher like Heidegger or a philosopher like Hegel, you know, who, you know, logically and conceptually rigorous, so logically and conceptually rigorous, they're almost impenetrable. Uh, and I know, and I grant, sorry, that you did say that, you know, you think that we can have um, analytical continental um, philosophers. But it seems to me that um, by including, you know, by being able to include certain thinkers in the analytical philosophy, such as Heidegger and Hegel, and also um, Fowler Thomas um, made the point uh, in response to Max's paper that, um, you know, there are certain portions of Aristotle's thinking and even uh, thinkers beyond Aristotle um, who exhibit this sort of log logical and conceptual rigor. It seems to blur the boundaries of analytical philosophy, and it me means that analytical philosophy is much wider and much older than its practitioners, and certainly its originators, um, took it to be. 
And so I'm wondering then what the difference is between analytical philosophy conceived in that way and just philosophy. Um, and another point I would like to make on that is that, you know, we seem to be including analytical philosophers here who are not typically taken to be representative of analytical philosophy, but we could also be excluding certain analytical philosophers who might be paradigm cases of, you know, analytical philosophy. I'm thinking of somebody like Wittgenstein and his later work. Um, that logical and conceptual rigor, I mean, when one reads the investigations, you know, sure, you might see, you know, certain common themes running th throughout it, but the amount of aphorisms and unexplored thoughts um, in the investigations, not just in the investigations and in other works in and around that period or leading up to that period, would seem to suggest that, you know, Wittgenstein isn't a great representative of um, this analytical school with its uh, logical and conceptual rigor. Uh, and, and, and to my mind, that sort of takes away um, the sort of any sort of strict identity conditions for analytical philosophy and renders the the project of bringing analytical philosophy and Thomism close together something of a bit of a red herring because if that's what analytical philosophy is then it seems to me that it's it's just philosophy and we're just trying to bring philosophy and Thomism together but Thomism is philosophy you know by Aquinas's own terms he you know he carves out space for philosophy um and so I don't see analytical philosophy as doing anything more than a kind of a you know a social or a political sort of work um within the the philosophical traditions um, but other than that, you know, it, it's a great paper and I'm only sorry that I can't, you know, be with you more, sir, you know, to chat about this and, you know, discuss it even further. But I'm happy for you to take the reins now, Sarah. So thanks so much to Gavin. That was great. I'm really sorry I can't meet you in person here. I thought those were great comments and I'll try to give just some off the cuff um, answers to these comments. So first, um, Gavin asked, is suspicion the right approach here? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't necessarily think it is. One thing I'm trying to do just, you know, in this talk is give voice to maybe, you know, like the form of suspicion some people might have. But as for the question, should we all like approach each other suspiciously? <laughs> I definitely think not, especially if engagement um, and philosophical progress is the goal. Um, you know, I think what we have to do is try to look for points of commonality, um, both methodologically, but also topically in order to make progress. And I actually think it's just like, is a lesson that applies to analytic philosophers, even within our own little club as well, right? Like who hasn't been in a really antagonistic Q&A, even when we're all methodologically on the same side and trying to figure out the same question. So, you know, a friendliness and openness to points of contact, I think, is definitely the way to go if we want to make progress. Um, yeah, the kind of interesting point about philosophy and theology and the relationship between those um, in the Thomistic system, and especially the kind of, we don't need God to kind of hold the Thomistic view of causation, for example. You know, I think that's a nice point. Um, on the other hand, this gets into to some of the things that were said later in the commentary, I think one form of suspicion on the part of analytic philosophers is that, you know, Thomists think they already know the answer. And so, you know, well, in principle, we might not need God for, you know, the question, the answer to the question of what is causation. In practice, I feel like analytic philosophers will be thinking to themselves, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. And then when God comes out, we're like, yes, I knew that. 
that has been part of the answer. I'm not saying that's healthy. I'm not saying that's the right approach. But you know, one problem is whether or not these things are in in principle separable. In practice, you know, I think they're not often treated that way. And so maybe treating them that way more in general would would help get rid of some of the the suspicion there. Um, then there's this question, um, you know, should philosophers think that, you know, their own opinions or their own backgrounds or their own ideas um, affect the evaluation of arguments? So um, Gavin, you know, rightfully points out on a particularly strict kind of conception of analytic philosophy or actually just many conceptions, you know, most analytic philosophers aren't going to want to admit that their own ideas or opinions um, infects their precise logic choppy arguments. I guess I actually have some mixed feelings about this. You know, there is a debate across academic subfields in general, not just philosophy, about the extent to which like a, a historical or a ideological work is even possible, right? Um, you know, even in math right now, there's some debate about whether ideology affects mathematical, mathematical truths and stuff like that. And so while I think there is a particularly sort of like pure idea of what analytic philosophy is, is like totally unrelated to like our historical moment or our like personal background ideologies. In fact, I think all of those things really do creep in no matter who we are and no matter which side of the divide we're on, you know, our arguments, the topics we work on, the modes we publish it, and the people we talk to, um, and some of the methods are gonna be infected a bit by who we are, the moment we live in, you know, things that shouldn't technically sort of infect, you know, how good of an argument something is, but in fact, I think they do. And so at least for me, I think it's just better to recognize that, to be like, yep, you know, we all have this background coming into it. It's important to make it explicit. And then we can just sort of argue about things while making explicit what our own ideologies are. I do think it's important for everyone to admit that they have an ideology. Um, you know, when it's when it's one party saying, oh no, I'm the one totally uninfected by the current historical moment in ideology, you're the ideological one, that's unhealthy. But if we can all admit it, work on it, make it explicit, that will help us make some philosophical progress. Um, yeah, and then the last great point, what is analytic about analytic philosophy? Um, where do we put people like Heidegger and Hegel, Wittgenstein? So I'm like full disclosure, I might be out of the norm here, but I think analytic philosophy does encompass all of those people or at least certain aspects of their system. Um, you know, I do think it's a really big tent. I've actually always thought the analytic continental divide is really more sociological than methodological. Not saying that's true across the board. Um, I do think some of the differences are just like stylistic. Like it's pretty different to read David Lewis or Frege than to read like Heidegger or Nietzsche. They're just sort of like different artistic experiences. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean they're totally different topically or methodologically. I've actually been wanting to teach a class for a long time on the continental analytic divide and whether or not it's really a divide. So I fear I might just be like a more sympathetic ear than most with respect to this point. Um, Father Philip Neri in his comments on Mac, you know, worried about the problem of overgeneration and undergeneration. Like, are, are we kind of saying that too many things are analytic philosophy or too few things are analytic philosophy? I think I probably fall on the too many side of it. Like, for example, I think on a certain conception of analytic philosophy, some theoretical physicists are really going to turn out to be philosophers. They should take that as a compliment, but somehow I won't think they, they will. <laughs> you know, some theoretical mathematicians, a couple mathy poets, right? Like, like 
they're going to be more people in the tent, I think, that are than are traditionally thought to be so. But that does just represent kind of my first sort of view of methodology, and that can be debated. Thanks so much, Kevin.